October, and before we dive in, so what have you been watching outside of the month? I've been kind of all over the place. I've been like doing a mixture of horror stuff, and then I've yeah. Last year I, I really slacked, so this year I'm trying to like That's make good. up for that, and I'm so- yeah. solely watching horror films. Yeah. So last year I had COVID during this time, so I went just full on like I was knocking out three movies a day of yeah. just like shitty horror movies was the thing. Uh, I mean, not what as else much can now. you do when you're, when you're sick, right? Yeah, that's the thing. <laughs> like, now I've been watching, like, I watched Sneakers, which is not a horror film whatsoever, uh, on Criterion. They had the techno thriller ones. Watched Farewell My Concubine. Also, I mean, it's, not, horrific, not it's, a horror film. it's horrific in moments, just <laughs> because it deals with, like, war and like that, but not like a, not a horror film, mm-hmm. uh, per se. Um, I mean, I am going to see Killers of Flower Moon on, on Thursday, so that will yeah. break my, my streak, but... yeah. My, mine's mine's a mixture. Uh, I watched both Haunted Mansion movies for some reason. You watch both what? Haunted Mansion. Oh, you watched the, the Eddie Murphy one. You yeah, revisited yeah. it. How did it, how did it hold up? I think it's better than the, the new. Oh one. wow! Well, I, I, here here's what I'll say. I won't, I won't go that because I choose what you want. Because uh, there's moments of, of both that work and moments that that don't work in both. I think what's interesting, what what's good about the Haunted Mansion one, not to say this is not the case with this newest one, but. There's something about where you see Terrence Stamp fully committing. That's true. To that role, you're like, okay, let's take this a little bit serious. And I think there's something about too. But when you watch that that movie, it's like there's a mix of you have the mix of digital effects are taking off that point, but you still you still have a lot of practical effects. Yeah, that, that mausoleum stuff's cool. The mausoleum stuff is actually kind of scary. Has that ever been any part of the ride or anything? Or was that just invented for the movie? I think that was just kind of invented for the movie. Oh like yeah, you, you have the cemetery stuff, but no, not a mausoleum. Yeah, because I mean, I remember the guy singing and yeah, and that was kind of my my thing with this one. I wish that that um we got more of stuff like not in the ride. It, ah, I see. it felt like. We were kind of just hitting the bullet points of we got to put everything that's in the ride in this movie. And I, I don't know if you need to do that mm. exactly. I, I think you could have easily gone all, offside of it. And I think that's what what the 2003 version did. The 2003 version, funny enough, I, I, what did I, what did I compare it to? Oh, it's basically Beauty and the Beast, but I oh, mansion. Like mm. it has a similar plot line where like he's uh, trapped in the mansion because of this long lost love and he has to convince this new person to like fall in love with him again so that they're all free from being ghosts. Like, Oh, that's basically being a beast with them all being like a wardrobe or candle or whatever. Um, but yeah, so I've been, I've been, I got, I got the back half of this month. I got, I got to pick it up. I got to pick up the pace. I, I made like a list on, on letterbox, but I divided it up of like to where I'm not watching the same type horror movie over and over again. Yeah. But like, I was like Italian horror, Spanish horror, uh, uh, zombie movie, uh, um, 50s horror. And kind of, I try like to, to do a variation to where I'm not just watching Scream 1 through 6, which I could easily do if need be. Um, yeah, what, what are some top ones that you've watched before we dive into uh, today's movie? Definitely The Skin I Live In. Uh, okay. A movie is messed up, but it's it's, uh, it's great. And honestly, I can't really say much about it without... Mm-hmm. Um, Without just getting into how messed up it is, but it's a it's a really well crafted movie. Yeah, Ban- I did not know Antonio Banderas had that in him. Yeah, um, but I mean, what a performance, dude! And like that could have usually been schlocky, but yeah. it's like it's just genuinely disturbing. Um, and w- you hear that, and you're like, and then you're watching, it and you're like, this isn't that bad. And then there's like a twist, and you're like, holy shit! Yeah, I can't believe he went there. Um, but it is Almodovar, and he's dealing with similar themes to his his more straightforward drama. Yeah, uh, th- drama films that I've seen. Uh, so that's up there. Uh, what else? Uh, I mean, I rewatched Halloween. Always a classic. Yeah, yeah. Um, rewatched Rosemary, Rosemary's Baby, which I hadn't seen since undergrad. I want to say. Yeah, yeah. And I've forgotten how 
well crafted and just eerie that movie is. Yeah. Um, just really nails like a haunting atmosphere. Um, yeah. I mean, I've been trying to <laughs> rewatch some classics. Yeah. And I still need to watch Diabolique, which I've never seen. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I got my list over here. Yeah, my list too. I've been going on. I mean, I've been watching a lot of uh, <laughs> Living Dead and variations for the. Uh, the oh the yeah, uh, uh, the zap. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but there was another one I, I really liked. Uh, let's see. No, I mean that's. I, I mean, I, outside of rewatches, um, yeah, that, those are my kind of my. Well, speaking speaking of movies, uh, we haven't seen in a while. Let's talk about today's movie because I have my history is is uh, it's been Sparse. Long, it's been a long time. Uh, I have I have a I have a specific story of how I saw this movie, mm. um, but it's been since high school, is the thing. So, thirteen, twelve, thirteen years. Yeah, is what it is. 13 years, I guess. Um, and it was also, it might have been junior year high school is the thing. So even even longer. But before we do that, I am Brand Sparks. I'm Dave the Fourth. And this is Tenation Podcast. And this month we've been talking about social horror movies. And you're probably like, as we've all said, Brandon, but horror movies all have social issues. That's true. But we're looking at movies that kind of wear their topics on their sleeve, I guess you could say. That they're they're more apparent of what they're referencing or what they're talking about um, in the moment. I think sometimes these can be time capsule movies where they're talking about a specific uh, issue in the of the time. It's like while something like Get Out has issues that I think are sadly uh, uh, relevant for any decade. It is a very specific like Obama administration and the Trump administration like time period of what it is. So everyone kind of referred to as the first horror movie of the Trump generation or Trump presidency, but it was kind of written in reaction to Obama's presidency in a way and, and, and racism in America at that point and the view of racism in America at that point. It captured, it captured like what was in the ether and kind of exactly. this transitional period. Exactly. Or then we talked about um, with uh, 2000 Maniacs in a similar way of talking about this idea of um, the a lost cause uh, of the of the Civil War <laughs> and how that was becoming a larger thing during the Civil Rights Movement, um, and how that movie d- doesn't fully but attempts to kind of create a horror bent on. I mean, in reality, it's like Thousand Maniacs is kind of a, a early predecessor to Get Out in a way with what they're trying to do of, of trapping people and turning them into whatever and kind of doing this kind of ritual type thing. Um, and then uh, today's movie, I also kind of compare Thomas kind of brought up how like a lot of these movies, social issues, there's always kind of sometimes always can, can sometimes be a lesson in some way or a statement being made. He kind of comment, he kind of talked about how like Twilight Zone movies kind of come to play with those kind of like short, uh, like here's kind of the, the premise of this movie. Um, it's easy kind of to explain. And then we, we tried to do a horror story out of it. Um, we talked about on our Patreon that just it's coming out soon, I believe. If it's not out already on uh, Tales from the Hood and Bones. So we kind of talked a lot about different stuff. Uh, we'll talk about more uh, next week with a different movie that's not race-related like some of these have been. Um, but today we're talking about Night of the Living Dead. And this is one that you picked, uh, David. And I know it's a big favorite of yours. Thank you. Oh, yeah. You have a thing in your room that's... Yeah, a, yeah. yeah. Well, I'll talk about that with the initial okay. thoughts. But yeah, yeah. I uh, Yeah, I mean, it's... One of my favorites, um, but uh, I, I think I have pitched this multiple times. I know for sure I pitched it the month of Clerks. Um, wanted yes, to do it for one, the month of one, Clerks. one location yes. movies or or like or twenty four hour movies. I can't remember yeah. which one it was. Yeah, uh, but I wanted to do it then. But yeah, uh, 
So, but, but a quick so intro. Time, time has finally come. Yeah, yeah. But quick intro to Night of the Living Dead. It was released on October 4th, 1968. Oh, made for a budget of around 114000 Uh There's kind of a debate about that, but that is the yeah. number I saw the most, so we're going to stick with that. Uh, it tells the story of a group of seven folks trapped in a farmhouse from mysterious flesh-eating ghouls and, of course, like the group conflicts that arise mm-hmm. between them. Uh, directed by George Romero, his feature debut, who also co-wrote, edited, and shot a vast majority of the film. Co-written by John Russo. Now, his friends call him Jack. Um, so if you mm. ever hear me refer to somebody as Jack, that is John Russo. Uh, stars, starred local actors, friends, and friends of friends. Uh, just quick list here. Dwayne Jones, Judith O'Day, Marilyn Eastman, Carl Hardman, Judith Ridley, and Russell W. Streiner. And, of course, we will get into each of their relationships with Romero and the company uh, as we go th- forward. Yeah. Uh, it's currently streaming on Criterion Channel, Max, Canopy, Peacock, Shutter, and pretty much every free with ads uh, service in existence because of the copyright issue, which like, we will also like, get I into. I wonder why. Yeah, which we will get into in the aftermath. I'm sure there's a free copy, multiple free copies on YouTube as well. Um, but yeah, that's kind of the the you know the uh, gist of it. Uh, we can get into our initial thoughts. So what is what is your history with Night of the Living Dead? So my history goes back to, I believe it was junior high school. So I I think I've talked this before on this podcast where I went around at one point to people, teachers, even friends of like, hey, what's movies you think I should? What are movies you think I should watch? And so I got a long, I had a written list. I wish I could find it. I do, I do have a list of it on Letterbox of like what was on the initial list of like what movies do you think I should watch that are important. And so I had teachers that gave me said, oh, you need to watch here are five 1980s teen or teen dramedies you should watch or whatever. Um, another person was like, here are five war films you should watch. So that's Apocalypse Now, Platoon. Bridge Never Quiet, like all these different movies. And then like the my principal, she was like, Here are eight Westerns you should watch or whatever. Hmm. So it's like Manage Hat Liberty Valance, The Searchers, Stagecoach, things like that. So as a six as a seventeen year old kid, like it was actually an interesting kind of film like like education. Yeah, from multiple perspectives. From too. multiple perspectives, yeah. from different decades, different genres. Yeah. And a buddy of mine Uli is his name. He was from, he's from Germany. He was like, you should watch Night of the Living Dead. And he let me borrow his copy of Night of the Living Dead. Was uh, it a DVD, I'm assuming? It was a DVD at that point. He gave me, he gave me Night of the Living Dead and Ronan with <laughs> Robert De Niro. <laughs> uh, two very different movies. Hell of a double bill. There. Hell of a double bill. Uh, but all, he's like, car, 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 the, uh, car chases are great. And it was just John Frankenheimer that did the yeah. Ronan. And it is a good movie, but I was just two vastly different <laughs> Different films, um, but Night of the Living Dead was on there, and 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 I had not seen it since then. But it's one that, like, I think, especially if you watch it like that young, it it, it, it leaves an impact. If you never watched again, mm-hmm. is the thing. I think Romero's vision is so unique and so uh, effective and and influential in a lot of ways. I think Dwayne Jones is also just I think great in the lead roles. We'll mm-hmm. talk about later. I think again, even the moment, it's like. Even in high school at that point, like seeing a black actor in a lead role in a black and white film and not overtly talking about race, but looking at now a very it's it's still an underlying, mm-hmm. I think, thing throughout it. I, I do wonder what happens to this movie if it's a white guy in the lead role mm-hmm. is the thing, because I think it's such a it's there's a lot of imagery that's going in there. And we'll talk about later. I think, uh, 
dealing with race mm-hmm. at this, especially this period of time in, in America. Um, but yeah, that that's my very brief history of it. And I'm ex- I was excited to kind of come back and revisit it because, um, it, it's, it's gained. It's like, I feel like it was one that everyone always talked about in high school. And now it's like, then it was still more of like a culty type thing. I think now it's, it's been pushed up to like a different pantheon of that, the pantheon of horror films yeah. of, of being influential. I think for the like the younger generations, I think when Walking Dead came out, they kind of yes. started a new conversation about Night of Living Dead and Romero's Dead films yes. in general. Yeah, um, but yeah, and no, like, I saw it around the same time. I saw yeah. it in high school. I had seen Dawn of the Dead first. I'm pretty sure, mm-hmm. and so I went back and watched Night of Living Dead. And, and to be fair, like that was one of maybe the few black and white movies that like I really liked at that time, like yeah, this yeah. and Psycho. But I mean, yeah, that ending, dude. I can just like I had never seen anything like that. That impacted me that way. Like that gut yeah. punched me. That way, and, and we won't get into the spoilers yet, but but we uh, will. We, 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 yeah, I mean, if you haven't seen this movie, uh, you didn't. Need to I think. Well, I think the ending, how I talked about with Two Thousand Maniacs last week, is that I think the ending is what solidifies right. it uh, in terms of a social horror movie. Is the mm-hmm. thing I think that's what really kind of makes it that, so. and maybe not intentionally, as we will uh, dive into. Interesting, but okay. I actually, yes, uh, as you mentioned, I do have the um, Romero's autograph in my room. Uh, he signed my DVD of Night of the Living Dead, and I got a picture with him. I met him a couple years before he passed, and yeah, he was mm-hmm. just like a really genuine dude, really humble dude, really kind. Uh, yeah, I met him at a horror convention in, in Lexington, Kentucky, of all places. Hell and, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I just really appreciated talking with him. And he, like, you know, he, like, a lot of times you go to those kind of conventions and people are, like, trying to move you on. Yeah. He actually really took, even though his line was long, like, one of the longest lines yeah, yeah. there, um, he really took the time to, like, talk to each person. Yeah. And I, I just really appreciated that. And uh, it meant a lot to me because I had just, like, started experimenting kind of with filmmaking. Yeah. And to hear him say, like, yeah, you can do it, man. Just just do it. It, it, it meant a lot. And I still Look go back at to me. It. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, so we can now get into the history of how okay. I got into production. So before kind of discussing the history of Night of the Lady Dud, we need to talk about the history of Latent Image, which was a company founded in 1963 in Pittsburgh by George Romero and Russell Striner. Romero, who, uh, by the way, Russell Striner plays Johnny in the film. Okay. Uh, Romero had dropped out of Carnegie Tech, now known as uh, the was it Carnegie Center of the Arts or whatever. Yeah. Um, had dropped out of Carnegie Tech, uh, and they rented an office for $65 a month, which they also... Uh, used as their crash pad. Mm-hmm. Um, John Russo was invited, who was again the co-writer, was invited to join them in this uh, venture, but he had to go into the army, uh, had to go to Vietnam for two years. Uh, so they told him that when he returned, if they were doing well, he could work for them. Uh, and he did end up doing that. Uh, Vince Servinsky, who is the production designer of Night of the Living Dead, joined them in these early days, and he owned a local roller rink in Pittsburgh, but he always wanted to get into film, so mm-hmm. that's kind of his introduction. And in the early years, Romero would sell an occasional oil painting for maybe 50 bucks or so, uh, and this allowed them to buy a pet monkey, allegedly, and a table hockey game, so they spent more time you know, playing around with these things than productions, because mm-hmm. they were struggling to get clients um, at this time. Yeah. They started doing weddings, and this led to kind yeah. of a new budding industry at the time, commercials. Yeah. And so they started with just local Pittsburgh commercials, and then they ended up getting like bigger companies within Pittsburgh, yeah. um, beer commercials, stuff like that. And this allowed them to get a bigger office space and more clients. Uh, Which is happening a lot at this point, because like, I know yeah. like with Heck Harvey, with Carnival of Souls, mm, it's the same similar thing. thing. Yeah. And then I think even Altman as well, because yeah. I think also out of Kansas was like, people are doing commercials, industrial videos mm-hmm. before like, you know, let's, we got all this equipment. Yeah. Let's we can make a movie. Yeah. And the thing is too, is like, 
before like a TV like a TV show or something would be sponsored by something, and so the, the, yeah. like, they would have somebody with like in the context of that or like an announcer, yeah. like just plug the thing at the end of the show. Mm-hmm. But now it's like these commercials are actually being like cut in, like especially for sports programs, yes, uh, with beer commercials. Uh, but when Romero did get a job, he would live basically that job, like that was his. You know, he would breathe, live and breathe it. Um, and sometimes he would edit from from 36 to 48 hours until the project was done straight. Mm-hmm. Um, he didn't think about starting a family at this time. He was just his mind was all about film and media. This was the career he wanted. And that was what he was going to do. Uh, Russo is quoted as saying, we had gotten a reputation in some circles of being an energetic nucleus of creative maniacs who could make films for those who couldn't afford or didn't want to spend very much money. We were fiercely proud of our work, but most of the time we were broke, frustrated, and physically and mentally exhausted. Mm -hmm. But one of the early projects that they were able to work on, like a lot of people who started in media in Pittsburgh, was uh, Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. And so Romero directed a short for Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood called Mr. Rogers Gets a Tonsillectomy, and he is quoted as saying, which remains one of the scariest movies I've ever done. (laughs) Um, But their big, big hit that kind of sent them off into a new stratosphere was The Calgon Story, which was a $90,000 budget commercial, uh, and this allowed them to purchase their first 35-millimeter camera, Mm -hmm. but they sacrificed the profit from the commercial. Uh, it was kind of a send-up of Fantastic Voyage. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was a washing machine cleaner, and like these people go down in a spaceship to clean the washing machine. Uh, Goofy thing. Yeah. And during this time, Romero was kind of already first starting to think about, like, I want to make a feature film. And so he had this concept called uh, Wine of the Fawn, which was an art film in the vein of Ingmar Berg- Bergman's The Virgin Spring, mm-hmm. which was also the big inspiration for Wes Craven's Last House of the Unleft uh, yep. a few years later in the 70s. Um, and actually... Famed makeup artist Tom Savini mm-hmm. auditioned for this film for the lead. Uh, and by the way, he's a high school student at this time. Uh, and so he showed George Romero his makeup portfolio because he did. Uh-huh. He was like, well, maybe he won't cast me, but maybe he'll end up hiring me for, to do makeup in the future. Yeah. But unfortunately, uh, as Night of the Living Dead was kind of coming into gear, which we'll discuss in a second, he, uh, Tom Savini was drafted to Vietnam. Oh, man. But his experiences in Vietnam, which I believe he was a, a combat photographer for most of it, uh, would further influence his makeups and his, yeah. his kind of ideas. But, I mean, he was very much a go-getter at this young age. And, again, of course, he would work with Romero on Dawn of the Dead and, and mm-hmm. other projects. Um, <clears throat> Romero also filmed a comic anthology around this time titled Expostulations with a budget of $2,000. But the soundtrack was never completed, so it be, remains an unfinished mm-hmm. film. And this kind of got them into this uh, this period where they were... Uh, you know, coming up with the idea for Night of the Living Dead. So mm-hmm. in January 1967, Romero, John Russo, and Rudy Ritchie, who was another um, early part of the company, discu- uh, discussed making a horror feature over lunch because they were trying to make something more commercial than their previous kind of ideas for yeah. what their first feature would be. Um, and this first concept at this meeting was a horror comedy about adolescent aliens. Uh, Russo said the main reason that this idea got scrapped was because they couldn't afford to pull off these grand special effects that they were kind of conceiving. Yeah. Um, Russo also had the idea that a boy would, like, arrive at a cemetery to discover ghoulish people or alien creatures feeding on human corpses. And this reminded Romero of a short story he had written inspired by I Am the novel I Am Legend by Richard mm-hmm. Matheson. Uh, and so he returned with 40 pages of a screenplay based on this short story with the working title The Monster Flick. Hmm. So this kind of, like, got them all uh, jazzed, and they started to bring in more people. And uh, they, they worked with Hardman Associates, Inc., which was run by Carl Hardman, who plays Gary Cooper in the film, mm-hmm. and Marilyn Eastman, who plays his, his wife in the film. Uh, she wasn't his wife in real life, though. I just realized his name was, is it actually Gary Cooper? Uh, I think so. Harry Cooper. Harry, Harry, Harry Cooper. Cooper. Yeah. I was like, <laughs> the, really? The yeah. <laughs> Harry Cooper. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So they started working with Hardman Associates, Inc., which was like a local uh, audio company uh, run by Carl Hardman and Marilyn Eastman, who played 
uh, husband and wife in the mm-hmm. film. Uh, and this mm-hmm. kind of, with this cohort together, they created the company Image 10. And this company's con- conceit was that they were only going to produce one film because they didn't want to uh, tie up profits into another film, essentially. Yeah. So they had an initial budget of $6,000 from 10 investors providing 600 each. This included Russell Streiner, Vincent Servinsky, Rudy Ritchie, Russell's brother Gary, Carl Hardman, Marilyn Eastman, and attorney Dave Clipper. Okay. Um, and at this point, they started brainstorming the second half of the script and kind of changes to the, the first half to lead to these events that would happen in the second half of the script. And then Russo kind of took over the goal or the uh, took it, took over the job of uh, completing the screenplay because they were about to start shooting. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and they would went, end up raising over the the rest of production another hundred thousand dollars, over a hundred thousand wow. dollars. Uh, and at times they would have to like pause and show footage to get additional funds yeah, or yeah. dailies or like some cuts it together sequences. One of their first hurdles was finding a location and they found one, a farmhouse in Evans city, Pennsylvania that was going to be bulldozed. Um, so they were able to rent it for 300 a month, but unfortunately it had no running water mm-hmm. and they had to bring their water from a nearby stream uh, up a steep hill. Uh, Romero, Vince, Gary Streiner and Russo all slept at the house and took cat baths in the morning. Allegedly, Romero didn't do his laundry throughout the entire shoot and just bought new clothes. Oh, God. Um, After that $100,000. <laughs> I don't think he did it on production budget. I think he just did oh, it on his own And the location also didn't have a basement. Um, so that door that you see in the movie, <laughs> they just cut that in. So, uh, like, they just cut that into the wall. And made it. there was, like, a little gap there, so it made it look like... Wow. Yeah. So they had to shoot the actual uh, cellar stuff at the uh, basement at Le- Leighton Image headquarters. Mm. Um, Vince Servinsky spent two months... Uh, dressing the the then decaying house mostly with furnishings from Goodwill purchased for a grand total of fifty dollars, yeah. uh, and then also many involved in the production provided items to fill closets, junk drawers to give this location like a very lived in look. And so they grabbed the crew from friends and associates and friends of friends. Gary Striner again, who's Russell Striner's brother, uh, is quoted as saying, "I wasn't a sound man. I was just a guy who put his hand up and said, okay, 'Okay, I'll do that.' Because they and also they did not hire a boom operator because mm-hmm. uh, again they're trying to you know." have people wear multiple hats. Yeah. Um, so they would just watch, uh, basically Striner, Gary Striner would just watch the blocking and just put the cam or the, uh, uh, Mike in like the most central location of where the, the, the action was taking place. Um, and he said it was a miracle that you can actually hear anything, um, mm-hmm. <laughs> in the movie. Um, and there's George Cus Casana, who, uh, was very much remembered as his, uh, turn for Sheriff McClelland, uh, some of the most famous lines from the movie was also the production manager and he was actually a steel worker <laughs> and um, also worked for a taxidermy business, which is where all the stuffed animals on the walls came from. Oh. So casting Rudy Ritchie, again, who's part of the group was originally going to play Ben. Um, and in the script, he's a truck driver. So he's like, he doesn't very speak very well. Like he speaks a lot, like very Southern. He's also kind of a redneck. Yeah. Um, but they heard of Dwayne Jones through a friend who, and uh, learned that he was in New York teaching and acting. So while he was home visiting family, they auditioned him for the role, and everyone agreed that he was the best guy for the role, including Rudy Ritchie. Uh, so he would go on to change the character of Ben both in this like pre-production phase and while shooting mm-hmm. and make his dialogue sound like a more educated man because he himself was a very educated man. However, they didn't change any of the plot elements to fit a now black character because yeah. in the original script, they didn't. there was no race description yeah. or anything. Uh, so this, of course, has led to many political and social readings of the film. Uh, Romero wanted Betty Al- Aberlin who played Lady Alberlin on Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood for Barbara, but Fred mm-hmm. Rogers discouraged her of, ah. for, from appearing in a horror film. <laughs> uh, Judith O'Day had recently returned uh, to Pittsburgh after a stint in L.A., and Carl had called her and you know told her that they were making this movie, uh, and so she got involved. Russ Streiner, again, had 
is was part of the company, but he had been an actor at the Pittsburgh Playhouse, so he was cast as Johnny. Carl Hardman and Marilyn Eastman. Um, uh, Carl Hardman had been in the Calgon Story commercial, so he was a shoe in And at one point, he had also tried to uh, to make it work in L.A. and had to come back. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they both worked in local radio, so they were very well known in the Pittsburgh area. Um, and then uh, Carl Hardman's daughter, Kyra Schoen, uh, is actually the who plays his daughter in the film, uh, Karen. Oh, yeah. And then Judith Ridley, and she apparently actually we go back to Kyra Schoen. She apparently uh, would watch uh, a local horror movie, uh, whatever you call that, where like a, there's a, a guy talking. Paul, yeah, Paul Gaps, yeah, yeah. type thing. Yeah. Yeah. She would watch those, and it was called Chiller Theater, and she she loved it. So she had like no issue yeah. <laughs> doing the things that she has to do in this movie, um, and she had fun. Uh, Judith Ridley was a receptionist at Hardman Associates, uh, and was originally actually considered for the role of Barbara because they all liked her so much, mm-hmm. but they decided to give her the less demanding role of Judy. And then her uh, boyfriend in the film, Tom, is played by Keith Wayne, who was also new to acting. He led a local band named Ronnie and the Jetsters and would commute on the weekends to Myrtle Beach for a steady weekend gig. Oh, wow. Um, They cast many people to play themselves. Charles Craig, who plays the TV newscaster, was a real radio and TV veteran uh, and wrote his own copy, actually, for the movie. Chiller Theater host, uh, what the show I was just talking about, and WIIC TV frontman Billy, known as Chili Billy Cardile, played the field reporter. And then Steve Hutsko, a local news cameraman, signed on to play the cameraman in this scene after coming to the to the set to film a news a real news story. Real, real news story. <laughs> yeah. uh, and then of course various advertising clients and admin that they knew from their time, you know, making commercials, came to play zombies uh, as well as citizens of Evan City. They would go door to door and be like, "Hey, you want to be in a movie?" And some people would join. So it was very much a community yeah. event. And with that, we can move on to favorite scenes. So what's one of your favorite scenes, Brent? I mean, the cemetery is iconic. All of it. And I, and I wonder if I saw something of this at a young age or someone copying this because the zombie trying to get into into Barbara's car, I feel like I saw at some point at a young age and was terrified by it. <laughs> but I don't know if it was this or like something like copying this is the thing. But I, I always remember the image of, of some of a man at a window trying to break it in. And that and and that zombie's really smart. Yeah. Because he gets a brick and is like, ah, I want to. And like gets the brick and like, I was like, because most zombies wouldn't do that. They just punch their way through it or something like that. Uh, he's smart. But no, I like the kind of the dynamic of 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 Barbara and Johnny. Uh, and of course, the line, they're coming to get you, Barbara. Yeah, one of the most famous lines from the movie. Yeah. Um, where it's, they have this like fun sibling dynamic, I guess you could say. And it's and it's also just kind of funny, like like oh they're coming to get you, they're coming to get you, yeah, that guy right there. And then you're like, oh shit, the guy is coming to get you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's almost like like commenting on horror films before actually becoming. Yeah, weirdly, it's yeah. it's like oh yeah, and then and then it's like the old creepy man sometimes will get you, and then yeah. and he does stop, he'll hear you. <laughs> <laughs> That's our concern. Oh. Um, and yes, yeah, so I I like all that, and then he breaks in the car. Um, uh. And then just kind of this her, her kind of getaway is again Johnny gets gets bitten and taken over by uh, the zombie the old man zombie, um, and then we get her going to the house and and, and there's an interesting kind of there's an interesting feeling of when she gets to the house and make as I know it's gonna happen where it feels like okay we're in a war zone now yeah. does that make sense yeah, yeah. it's like the when she shuts the door you're like okay we're not leaving here this yeah. is it this is where we're gonna be after the rest of this movie. 
Um, what, what's what about what about you? What's the scene for you? Earlier? I mean, I love um, I love uh, Ben's introduction. Uh, du- yes, uh, I think, like you said, Dwayne Jones is a great great performer, um, and he has mm-hmm. this monologue early on. Uh, after he kind of takes apart the table and uses that table for various things throughout the yeah. rest of the movie. Uh, but he has this great monologue that, um, again, like the original screenplay would have, I don't think it would have had the impact that he delivers. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I mean, I think you just really feel his pain and he's kind of like telling the, the events that led him to this house, which could have just been an exposition dump. Yeah, but yeah. He, like he, coming from his like stage background and his acting background, he just delivers a, a really great monologue. And I think that's just one of the great acting moments of his throughout yeah, the, the film. And it's a great way to introduce the character. Yeah. And then you have after that when he's like he puts the radio on and starts breaking things down like basically prepping and like boarding everything up. Mm-hmm. And the radio is interesting because the radio is a I don't say sneaky but it's a smart way and sneaky I guess to deliver information yeah. in a movie like this. Because he's also doing other things while the radio's playing. Yes, with that one yeah. like that but, that but without the entire movie Right, right. Is that it's it's the the radio becomes this big outlet. It's like there's a part when the Coopers are downstairs. He's like, they have radio. Upstairs. They have radio, <laughs> and you unboard those doors. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What do you mean? Like, why are we down here? Why are we down here? That's our way to the outside world, and you're blocking us off. Um, and so it's an interesting way to kind of like give us context, give us information that. It also helps make the movie feel bigger. I agree. That was one of my thing. notes. Uh, that and the and of course the TV the yeah, the, the news too. reporting, yeah, yeah, both but news, it's yeah. like yeah, I mean it's like a very smart way to to deal with the their budgetary issues, yeah, really, like their budget their limited budget in the sense of like how do we open up this world and kind of show that this isn't just happening at this farmhouse this or farm. this it's one happening. town, it's yes. happening everywhere, it's happening and, everywhere. And not only that, the figures of authority don't really know what to do, what to do, or, or what caused this, yeah. Um, and so yeah, I, I think he's really he's really smart because obviously the the later dead films which we'll talk about in the aftermath. Uh, kind of create a bigger world visually, mm-hmm. um, and especially like the one I watched rewatched today, uh, Land of the Dead. It's like a whole community, like a whole different community, yeah, yeah. Uh, like a almost a dystopian. I mean, it is a dystopian society. Um, so it's interesting. I like how contained this is and how like more simple it is. Yeah, even though it does give the, you this idea of like well, what is going but on. It still outside gives these you doors. scale. Yeah, is the thing, and which is a smart way to to you know, I agree. make this independent film. So I agree. Uh, but yeah, I, and then. Um, I mean, I, I love these comp- like once uh, Harry and uh, Tom are introduced when they come up the stairs, and we realize, oh, there's more people at this house. Yeah, yeah. and there's kind of those, you know, this, it, the initial conflict between Ben and uh, Harry is this idea of like, well, no, we should go to the cellar. And Harry's like gung ho the whole movie, like cellar's the safest place. And yeah. Ben's like, no, 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 we need to stay up here. I just spent all this time boarding all these windows. Yeah, and I think we have more places to run if they end up yeah. breaking in. Uh, and that's kind of the conflict throughout the movie. Yeah. But as you said, there's there's more going on here. You know, it's subtextually. Yeah, it's subtextually. Yeah, there's more going on here. It's it's a black man telling a white man what to do. Right. And that white man's not very happy. Yeah. With it. And uh, and uh, Carl Hartman even said like I, I he he kind of changed the way he approached the character when he saw how Ben was playing it. I mean how um Dwayne yeah. how Dwayne was playing Ben. He said he was like, well at this point I'll just be a hard ass the whole time. Like I'll start as a hard ass and I'll end as a hard ass. Yeah. <laughs> That's what it is, yeah. and, and all of them. It's like even even when like when Barbara kind of first runs into yeah. him, it's this like it kind of has the thing of like who is this random black man in this house? Yeah, and she's not revealing anything. Granted, she's in shock is the right. thing, and I think another great scene is when she finally like cracks down. And tells him everything, and he's like, "You just got to calm down." Yeah, after he unloaded all yeah, his, yeah, he's stuff. like, "You just got to calm down." And hey, that's what he kind of is. Yeah. A lot of times, it feels like these people are crazy. Yeah, like, it, it feels. Uh, he, he's like these people, like just 
let's just do the thing at hand. Yeah. Let's not worry about this other shit. Like let's mm-hmm. let's survive here. I think, but I think Tom brings up an interesting point in that yeah. scene. It's like they're both so hard headed and they're so yes. gung ho about being the leader that if they did just work together, maybe they could have yep. solved a lot of the things that happened later in the movie. It's, it's like Gene Hackman yeah. and Denzel Washington, Crimson yeah. Tide. Right. It's like they're two hard headed people who like have a point of view. Yeah. But they're like they're like I gotta be right. Is right. the thing. Um, and I don't think either really is right. I think, no. I think again, Tom's point is like, if we work together, we might actually survive this. Yeah, because that's my <laughs> question is, where do you think is safer? I, I, so, I mean, I, I mean, I would never go to the basement because, again, like his point never, is a yeah. death trap. But also, because I, I, I never fully understand when people say that, that the irony of this is that Harry's right. Because if they did trap themselves down in the basement, the girl's still going to turn. Still, still and they're turns. not going to let... Him yeah. kill their daughter, right? Yeah. There's gonna be another fight. Like there's gonna be yeah, a fight yeah. down there. Also, that it's a more contained space. Yeah. And like uh, Ben said, like if they break into the house and then they break into the basement, you're you're, you're screwed. Yeah. You're not getting out of that. Getting out of there. Yeah. 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 Uh, even though, again, the dram- the kind of narrative irony is that Ben does end up in the cellar uh, later on. Yes. Uh, but yeah. But that's because everyone else is right. dead, and it's a last resort. It's a last resort. Yeah. Yes. Which yes. is kind of his point the whole time is that we shouldn't go down there unless and, we unless we it. absolutely have yeah. to is the thing. Yeah. Um. But the thing is, is that. A lot of the plans I think would work if just stuff doesn't get messed up is the thing. Yeah. Is that I'll go to my uh, another scene is is when they're they're they have the plan to get the truck, to go mm-hmm. to the cast, to then gear everybody out and leave. And dude uh Tom Tom yeah. just stupidly like Sprays gas, yeah. sprays gas everywhere. Well, I also gotta say, I think Ben was pretty dumb to put the the torch, set the torch down right by the That's truck. That's true. That's also like true. Like where they're about to be filled up. I mean, I think they both made a bonehead. And granted, yeah. they're rushed. They're like, oh, zombies are coming. Yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. And, and by the way, they don't call them actually zombies in the movie. They call them ghouls. But we're, yeah. we refer to them as zombies because that's what people later, when they were writing about this movie, refer to them as zombies. Yeah. Okay. Uh, but yes. Uh, he, <laughs> so I think it's like it's a comedy of errors, I guess. Or what's the uh, what's that? Uh, that idea of like everything that can go wrong will go wrong. What's it called? Uh, uh, um, uh, something law. Yeah, Murphy's law. Murphy's, Murphy's law. law thing. Yeah, everything that can go wrong will go wrong, and it does. <laughs> I was like, MacGyver was like, that's not right, Brandon. <laughs> MacGyver's law. <laughs> Mac- MacGyver's law. Because I'm because Murphy's law is a t- is it's a TV show yeah, yeah, yeah. thing as well. I was like, no, it's M, but it's not MacGyver. That's <laughs> dumb. Um, but yeah, I uh, I do love that sequence, and I think from that sequence, basically till the end, it's like nonstop, just like it is, it is stakes and like uh, just conflicts and things just going wrong, and yeah, you know. And again, it's again, you you light it on fire, then they leave Ben, and then it's like, oh, we gotta get out of here, and she's like, but my thing's stuck, and then they all just get blown yeah. blown up, and ben, and 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 there's great shots of Ben where he's just like looking at stuff like happening, and there's like it cuts to him like kind of a canted angle mm-hmm. of him just like. And and that's a sign of great acting, right? Great acting yeah. is reacting. Yeah, and just to shout uh, Dwayne, uh, Dwayne Jones real quick. Another great movie he was in, uh, Ganja and Hess, yeah, which is really good. I, I still haven't never seen it, but I've heard it's really. He's good. He's really good. Yeah, uh, it's a vampire, uh, like a, a kind of. A, I don't want to say it's a black exploitation vampire, because but because there's not really anything like, ex, like a lot of exploitation about. It. It's very kind of like. I've heard it's really art house and like, very yeah. art house uh, cinema with mm-hmm. how it tackles a, a horror element like a vampire. It's very interesting. It's it, he's really great in it. Is the thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so when I saw, it, I was like, oh, "That's the guy from Night of the Living Dead." Yeah, but uh, and he's great. But he didn't in both. do many many. Uh, he didn't do film, many, film roles. No, and he died at a young age. Is yeah. the thing too. Um, several people here died at a young age. I yeah. realize. I, I just saw Keith Keith Wayne also died yeah. at a young age too. Um, 
but uh but yeah and, and then it's and then it's the him fighting off the zombies with the with the gun and the fire to get back and it goes to that moment when he's trying to get in the door and cooper. harry cooper will not let him let in, in cooper. and you're just like oh man this is gonna be and then he, and he gets the door down and the face he gives yeah. cooper when Cooper's like hiding, he's like, he's like, if I didn't have to like fight for my life right now, I would yeah. shoot you. <laughs> yeah, and then and then he he boards the door, and then Cooper's and he does like, help him like, but he helps him yeah. because it benefits him to exactly. help him. Yeah, because if they get through, he's dead as well. Right. So he only helps him because of that. And then once they get somewhat safe, I guess you say, yeah, ben, then Ben, ben lets just it out, beats the shit out of him. <laughs> And they talked about rightfully that. so. They talked about this is only like a year uh, after, um, I guess after well, in the night, which, which was like a big thing was that he slapped a white man after he slapped Sydney yeah. Poitier. So it's like well, now it's now he's you know, like actively right, <laughs> right. And they, people were saying that they were like, "Well, wow, this is a jump yeah. <laughs> in a year." <laughs> what if I'm just a, a rat tat tat yeah. to a? And he also has uh, he also hits um, uh, Barbara Barbara well, earlier yeah. on. Uh, to kind of calm, I think the thought back process in the day, is to, back right. in the day, we're like this will calm you down. Yeah, but again, his original character was a truck driver, so it kind of made more sense. Yeah, uh, we'll talk about later kind of how Dwayne felt about that scene and, and various scenes throughout. Yeah, uh, but yeah, it, it made more sense in the original draft, and the, and Russo even pointed that out in the commentary. He was like, "Yeah, you know, we just kind of had him to, we needed him to do that because we needed her out of the story for a little bit." Yes, because <laughs> so, <laughs> um, that's the thing. Yeah. She's she's not in it a lot once she gets right. to and the house. When she is when she is shown, she's like completely lost it until yes. toward, towards the end when she kind of has that yeah. that moment, which is a great moment. Um, but yeah, like this from this truck plan to the ending is just like nonstop, boom, boom, boom. Yeah. But I do love uh, Chief McClellan, who's uh, <laughs> shown in the in the news report, the the you know the the lead of the the leader of the posse. Yeah, <laughs> just some of his lines are so good, man. They're all messed. They're, they're dead. They're all messed up. Put them in the fire. Put them in the fire. <laughs> the way he says oh, fire God. is great. Oh man. But yeah, I love him, and I love it. like the the again the the TV news report's great, and that whole that whole scene that they stole in in DC is is amazing. Um, they actually shot that in, in DC. Uh, Went up okay. in DC, shot that. Yeah. Oh wow. Um, and it's and it, like it, it, it kind of builds or it leads us to what Romero would be fascinated about throughout his career is like this this failure of authority, p- people yeah. in power, the authority figures. Um, and what, I think it all yeah. stirs from what this, do they do when they actually are met? Yeah, with but it all stirs from this era of like you know the pointless war in Vietnam and yeah, you're in yeah, a period. Yeah. You're, you guys think talk about context. You're in a period where it's '68, so you're the war's raging in Vietnam. There's this idea of the loss of innocence after yeah. Kennedy's assassination, 63, 63, right? 63. Um, I think it's 63. But yeah, because oh, yeah. Stephen King has that book. Uh, that's uh, what I was looking, yeah, that's what I was thinking about. What's the Stephen King book? Um, and the James Franco series. But yeah, but 63. And so you're looking at 63 for that. Um, you're looking at 68 also. And uh, you'll probably talk about a little bit with release is is King's assassination mm-hmm. in April 4th, 1968. Mm-hmm. And then Bobby Kennedy's assassination that summer at um, the Ambassador Hotel in LA. Um, so like, it, it, it's very much like a hotbed for violence in America. Um, and, hot- and there were riots going on at the time too. Yes. Because after King, especially after yeah. King's assassination, yeah. there were riots that were popping up everywhere in America, yeah. uh, specifically in 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 cities probably yeah. like pittsburgh is the thing um so yeah it, it, it's but it's a big jump from like you said 67 to 68 where it's a it's a, a a black man hitting a white man as a reaction never have you really seen it as an 
mm-hmm. action is the thing. And also, like, Ben's character as a whole, he's very, like, like we said, he's very, like, um, you know, he's very thoughtful. Very and, like, thoughtful, very forceful, very yeah, confident. Yeah, and that hadn't really been shown, at least to, to this extent in, in, in cinema. He is he is the definition of a hero. Right. Is the thing. He is the definition of a hero in a story. Which makes it all the more tragic when he's when, killed at when the end. When it's killed, yes, at the end. Which we'll go to we'll go that's well first off, I love the little girl turning to a zombie. Yeah. Like and with the with the Mason like thing or whatever. Yeah. It's was, funny you text me, you're like, I'm almost done, but I heard the music from that scene. I was yeah. like, Oh, he's almost done. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, I, I, I could distinctly remember yeah, that music. It's that weird like shrill like screaming yeah. almost. Um, yeah, and then yeah, with the the trowel, I guess. That, yeah, the trowel. Yeah, yeah. she stabs. And you just see like the blood spraying on the wall. The, and it looks like black blood. It, it is. It's uh, chocolate syrup. It's Bosco oh, chocolate syrup. Okay. <laughs> but since it's in black it's and white, psycho, they, it's the yeah. psycho thing. Yeah. Um. But yeah, I, I mean, and and according to everybody, they like that scene. That scene in the theater just like scared the shit out of people. Oh yeah, I don't like, doubt that. Nobody had ever seen like a, a girl kill their, their mother. Right, their mother. Like yes. an eight year old girl kill their mother. Yeah, and also we're just eat, we're just eating their father right, as right, well. His arm. Yeah. <laughs> It's, it's it's gruesome, um, but yeah. So then you get, and I think Marilyn Eastman, by the way, also really sells that scene. Yeah, she yeah does, especially because yeah. like the way she falls and like her neck's like stuck yeah, in the yeah. Oh yeah, the way it like, hits. Yeah, yeah. yeah, it's really creepy. Good falling in this movie, but <laughs> when Johnny falls and hits the hits yeah. the gravestone. Yeah, we'll talk about that. Um, but no, so yeah, the killing of Ben. This is where I say it, it kind of solidifies this movie as a social horror mm-hmm. is because of the way it's done. So basically, for those that are listening that have not seen the movie but are about to be spoiled, is that. The movie ends. It's the next morning. Uh, a posse is out searching for... Led by Sheriff McClellan. Yeah, some, yeah Sheriff McClellan, uh, who's searching for the last zombies who are still there. Yeah, because their whole thing was that in the earlier news report that they think they're going to clear the area yeah. within, the, within the next day. Yeah. Or like by the next morning. Yeah, and they just got to shoot them in the head. Yeah, and then I'll beat them, burn them. Yeah, and they then... They go up pretty easy. And then we're good. And they're shooting the zombies outside the house... And then they go, oh, there's movement inside the house. And you see Dwayne Jones is now like waking from his slumber in the basement. He's he's and climbing. he hears the shooting outside. He hears the shooting outside. He's like, cool, like we're good now. And he gets his and he's he gets up, gets his gun, walks to the window, and then you have like you shoot him right in the head and shoots Dwayne Jones and kills yeah. him. Another one for the fire. And then and then what's so interesting, it turns into a photo almost like photojournalism right. is the thing. It looks like images of that you're getting out of Vietnam mm-hmm. in a way where you're seeing it. Or like, even like uh, some of the civil rights stuff. You civil got, like, rights the stuff, do- yes. Like the images of the dogs. Of the and, dogs, yeah. yes. Where it, it's, a very, it's a very fascinating switch in storytelling right. where they have the ability to shoot this if they want to, but they said, no, we'll just do images. Yeah. And they're doing the images over the credits. With that eerie music. With that eerie music. Yeah. And it becomes like a news story. And I think McCullen's still like talking too, like a yeah. little bit. Yeah. yeah. And so it becomes this like, feels like a news story and that's where like if it's a white guy it doesn't have the same impact as right. the thing it shows the senseless killing uh of a black man by a a little bit of a a, a redneck posse but yeah. also also a police posse right. in a way right killing an un- what an un- but killing a black man uh when he's not the best, when, he, when he's innocent in this moment, as mm-hmm. as literally the hero in in the moment yeah. in some way has survived, and and is that it's not the the ghouls that kill him, it's humanity in the end that kills him right. is the thing. Um, that's a very impactful moment that might be lost on people nowadays because it's been so far gone. It's it's, it's I mean f- over fifty years, fifty five years. Mm-hmm. 
Um, in the moment, that that was probably a big shock. Yeah. Uh, with everything with this with the movie with this, well, character. even like just the conception of killing a hero like that in it, like that, that in itself, yeah. yeah. Like again, like with Psycho, we talk about like yeah. killing the the protagonist halfway through the movie. Like, yeah. People were like mind blown. You don't want to see the good part, good, right. good guy die, especially if it's in such a senseless way. Yeah, and after he went through all this hell to to you know yes. to get there. Uh, but does that cover all your favorite scenes? It. Oh, I'll, I'll say this too. The way it's shot is beautiful. The, the yeah. stuff it's shot. I think the like I they they shoot nighttime stuff really great. It has a very interesting look to it because you can tell it's like they're probably using like flood like big floodlights and stuff. So you have these like kind of interesting rings of light, and then darkness that yeah. surround those so they, rings they, of light. They used gobos to like shape the shadows okay. and the That's, lights. And that stuff. was really cool. It's really cool uh, how they do that. But the, and, and the way like there's some cool shots of of how they stage them in the room in the mm-hmm. radio when they're watching it all, and you have kind of like him like Dwayne in, the, in one corner and the other one like they, they stage them very well so within the frame so uh Romero said like at the time a lot of people compared like the visual style to Hitchcock but he always felt he was he was more so ripping off um Orson Welles yep. Shakespeare films which yep. I haven't seen but he was like yeah I, I I, those were the ones that those were the big influences for me visually Be- for Night of Living because Death. again with staging is that he, he could shoot he, Wells could shoot close-ups very in a very unique way where you can have multiple in a close-up mm-hmm. but feel like it's it's a full frame yeah but it's not like overcrowded mm-hmm. if that makes sense and he, he does that a lot in this movie i could see him doing those things like uh like chimes at midnight or othello or Macbeth, yeah. the, like those type things and again being in like a limited location like the blocking is going to be very vitally important to keeping the scenes like moving and keeping yeah. it interesting yeah. visually interesting so yeah uh yeah yeah all, all yeah all that's all that's great Oh, that's great. Cool. So, yeah, Onset Life. So, they started to shoot without knowing if they were ever actually going to finish this movie. Hell, yeah. Um, that's that's the spirit of an <laughs> indie filmmaker right but there. But they began shooting in early June, uh, 19 days at the house, and then they went back to commercial work for a little bit, and they had an additional seven days at the house later on. Uh, 30 total shooting days, some days allegedly going all the way to 24 hours. Ooh. Mostly on weekends, spread out over seven months. Uh, and they also wow. had three days at that basement set that I described at the Leighton Image. Uh, Marilyn Eastman... Uh, again, pretty much all of the people involved did wore multiple hats, and her other hat was in charge of the zombie makeup. Uh, Hardman also <laughs> helped her at times, uh, but she got gradually more experimental and sophisticated as the movie went on. Um, she's actually the zombie herself who eats that bug during the the sequence, oh. and she did the makeup on her face herself. Uh, as she like went on, she would start to experiment with thermowax uh, that she got from a mortician friend, and uh, she always said that she would concentrate instead of like trying to make. It looked decayed and whatnot because these are supposed to be recently dead yeah. zombies. She would just focus on one facial feature, like whatever dominant facial feature, and try to make that creepy and then make that the whole, you know, build the whole makeup around that. Uh, they shot on 35 millimeter black and white film, a 35 millimeter Aeroflex camera. When they were shooting dialogue, they had to put the camera in a blimp because the thing was so loud. Uh, I think one of them said it sounded like a Sherman tank or something. Um, and so this blimp was heavy as hell. And mm. so that's why a lot of the, or all the dialogue scenes are static on tripods and whatnot. And he pretty much covered singles on everybody involved in the conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, but when they weren't shooting sound, he was able to go handheld because the camera was only like 12 pounds. And this gave, which kind of what you were alluding to earlier with the still images, a kind of newsreel feel of the era. Because yeah. at this time, largely, uh, movies and cinemas were in color now. Yeah. And so what people saw in on their black and white TVs or on in black and white at the theater was newsreels. Mm-hmm. Um, and and also, you know, this handheld st- style wasn't often yeah. used in film um, and in, in, in cinema, in like 
you know, big screen movies. Yeah. Uh, and this also allowed him to shoot, you know, a lot of shots, get a lot of coverage. Uh, he's quoted as saying, I always used to say that I'd rather have 100 bad shots than 10 that are beautiful. You can edit 100 shots in a million different configurations mm. until you come up with something that's close to what you intended. A single shot, no matter how perfect, leaves you with no options. Um, and there's actually a... Oh, what did you say? Interesting. Yeah, uh, yeah. There was also a discussion actually earlier on of switching to color. Um, but they realized they would have to actually move to 16 millimeter film and reshoot several scenes that they'd already shot. Yeah. And they realized like budgetary wise, this isn't really a good idea. And yeah, yeah. because of the black and white, it kind of was more forgiving on the makeup and the blood and stuff like yeah. that and the lighting. They were able to do more interesting things with the lighting. Um, and because they couldn't afford to process like ample film stock, uh, as the production went on about halfway through Romero would mainly get like two or sometimes even one good take and then move on to the next setup. Mm -hmm. Uh, but Romero was very collaborative by all accounts. Uh, he's quoted as saying, my sets are very open and anybody's allowed to say whatever they want. I think that if you're confident in what you're doing, you accept ideas that fit and you reject ideas that don't. I'll buy anybody's suggestion if it works. Mm -hmm. um, and because of this, a lot of the dialogue was improvised. Uh, they would kind of mm -hmm. talk about the gist of the scene and then they would come up with how they, you know, how they would say it. In fact, Barbara's monologue about, you know, what happened to Johnny, she largely ad-libbed that. Um, and according to everyone, Dwayne was very professional on set. Uh, usually, like between takes or whatnot, he was just by himself reading a book. Mm -hmm. uh, but he was very much uh, not adamant or like uh, against the violence. But he he struggled to do the the violence that he was required to do on screen. Yeah. <laughs> At one point, apparently, he was taking one of the boards off of the window. He accidentally hit Romero and Romero's camera, mm -hmm. and he, Romero said for like an hour he couldn't. He couldn't work, yeah. <laughs> and it frustrated Romero. Uh, and uh, um, Dwayne had also never shot a gun before, so he was trained on set with the rifle. Uh, oh, wow. But they said he picked it up pretty quickly. Um, and I don't fully buy. So we, as we've discussed, they originally wrote this character as like um, uh, it didn't have a, a, a race. And it, race yeah. was not part yes. of it. Yes. So I don't fully buy. Both Rose, Russo and Romero were always saying like that they were naive to how people would read this and stuff like that. Um, because in their mind, they had always cast black actors. Like in their commercials and stuff, they yeah, they, yeah. they just picked whoever was best for the role. Um, but Dwayne, on set, was very cognizant of the fact that he was a black man and the things he was doing yeah. and would sometimes question or, or, or make suggestions about how he felt. Uh, but Romero Russo would say, but that was always in the script, Dwayne. Like, it was always in the script. And he would say, but now the character's black. We need to talk about this. Yeah. And so at that point, they would come to compromises and whatnot. Um, and at one point they even debated shooting an alternate ending, but Dwayne was adamant that that was a terrible idea. It would come off corny and unbelievable. He, he stuck wow. to the original. Ending. Um, mm -hmm. there was also a debate about explaining what caused, <laughs> what caused what's going on. And, uh, multiple explanations were actually shot, but cut from the final film. They did leave the Venus probe, uh, explanation or suggestion yeah, uh, yeah. because it was part of the news footage, but it's never like confirmed that that's what caused it. That's yeah. just speculation. Yeah. Um, and like I said, they used gobos to shape the light and shadows. The lighting supervisor, Joe Unitas, actually said he was very happy when Dwayne started, uh, Ben, the character, started turning on lights in the house. Because he was like, oh, not, then I didn't have to mess with those gobos anymore. We just flooded the flooded Flood the of light, baby. <laughs> and as I mentioned, they used Bosco chocolate syrup, uh, mostly for blood. Yeah. Um, the, the sequence that was uh, known to the crew as the Last Supper, which is when Tom and Judy, as we explained, get exposed. Uh, the truck explodes and leaves their remains, and so the zombies eat them. Yeah, good times. <laughs> uh, they uh, these got these entrails, guts, whatever you want to call them, from a local meat market chain uh, the, the, whose owner was an investor. <laughs> His name was Ross Harris. 
And then Vince took these on the day and filled them with water to give them that squishy, squirmy look. Mm. Um, but again, a lot of those zombies were like people they knew from their ad days and advertising, advertising men. Like, how's you know, the family, Steve? <laughs> and they would sit there and they chowed down on the, in that sequence. They seemed to enjoy it. So Regis, uh, who was Vince's brother, so Regis Servinsky, uh, Romero always re- referred to him as Reg, uh, and Tony Pantel. Pantanello, who was his assistant. It's like Joey Pants is here? No, 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 no. Tony Pantanello. Uh, they uh, rigged the squibs, all the squibs uh-huh. in this movie. Uh, and they were fireworks guys outside of this. So they kind of had some experience with explosions and whatnot. They had found an old truck that was at an abandoned strip mine, and they mm. tested explosives on it for the sequence where the truck explodes. Oh, until wow. Until they saw something, <laughs> until they saw, like, got the right debris amount that they wanted. Uh, Romero chuckled in the behind the scenes talking about Tony because he said he always had a smoke from his mouth while he was ricking all the stuff. Um, That's a daredevil. Now, that being said, he never caught himself on fire, but oh, Russo and Bill Hensman, who is the cemetery zombie in the movie, mm-hmm. but he's also in all this stuff at the house, yeah. uh, volunteered themselves to be set on fire, but they had no protective clothing. They just wore extra layers of clothing. So the, apparently their like, thought process was, like, well, you know, if, I, if we get hot, we'll just fall to the ground. Somebody, somebody will be nearby with blankets put us out. Um, and that's what they did. Uh, and neither of them got injured. They just... Okay. And it looks good in the, in the scene. But Gary Striner, Russell Striner's brother, again, the sound man, accidentally set himself on fire because during that scene where Ben lights the chair on fire and puts it out into the outside, you know, to get yeah. the zombies away, he, he was in charge of... He was holding a big gas can and he was in charge of dousing it on dousing it with gas in between takes and he said they waited like 30 minutes he didn't see anything so he started dousing it and all of a sudden it must have caught an ember under the chair or something because the whole can caught and his arm caught on fire mm. um, and he said Bill Hensman again the, the cemetery zombie who was also in the, this whole sequence tackled him and, and put the <laughs> helped him put the fire mm. out um, so but in, in his account he's the only one that, that happened to uh, and of course they got real police and police dogs uh the posse was made up of locals who just brought their own rifles and it was kosana's job to keep them in line and make sure the rifles weren't loaded oh god oh man the helicopter stuff yeah the helicopter stuff was a real traffic helicopter pilot from the radio Uh and he was actually just there to do a news story uh and they ended up putting him in the film and they also allowed rush streiner to go up with him and get all those aerial shots so none of that would have happened that was all just like look um and, a, and this uh, opening cemetery sequence that we talked about in our favorite scenes was actually the last thing shot. So they originally thought that uh, Russo was going to play the cemetery zombie. Mm-hmm. But Bill Hensman had been around because he was also helping with lighting and stuff when he was not playing a zombie. Yeah. And they were like, well, he was really creepy in the other sequences. Let's make him the main. Yeah, yeah. the cemetery zombie. And he nails it. But <laughs> but uh, Russo had already been made up into zombie makeup. And so he spent the day loading magazines and working the clapper as a zombie. <laughs> Um, and Hinsman has said he based his performance on Karloff from a movie he'd seen mm-hmm. where he played a reanimated corpse. Uh, he believed it was The Walking Dead from 1936, but he wasn't positive that that was mm-hmm. the movie. In Not that, Frankenstein? No. In that <laughs> sequence, Hinsman asked Romero, I, I don't know how you want me to kill Johnny because this whole time you've been telling us that we're weak, we're slow, and we're only good when we're in numbers. And Romero thought to himself for a second, and then he told him, fuck it, just kill him. And so they blocked that scene where he falls on the grave and they added that sound to sell that his neck snaps. And that shot that you were referencing earlier where he, he breaks the window with the brick yeah. was supposed to happen on the first hit. Um, oh. Because that's not sugar glass or, or oh, like I didn't fake glass. Think, I didn't think it glass. was. And not only that, when he... When he finally smashed it, he was so surprised he accidentally let go of the brick and it hit Romero, who was in the backseat film. Um, and... 
it was actually Russell Strainer's car. That, sorry, Russell Strainer's mom's car that they were using. <laughs> and so this sequence was shot over two days. So if you notice, oh, there's no. um, that uh, uh, that Barbara wrecks the car, right? Yes. That wasn't in the original script. What happened was somebody had backed into her car and hit the door and no. dented it. And so Romero, thinking on his feet the next day, was like, well, let's just shoot it where she wrecks it. And it gave him like some extra production value. Um, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. I wonder how the mom thought about that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think they had already agreed. Well, obviously, they, they had already agreed that they were going to smash the window, but they didn't think there was going to be any other damage to and just re- pay to replace yeah, the window. Yeah. But there wasn't any <laughs> thought to be any other damage to the car. So yeah. he added that. Um, but now we can get to the aftermath. Uh, so it had five months of post-production while they were still doing commercial work with Leighton Image. Oh, gosh. Uh, but Romero actually thought that that was... Uh, he thought it was good for the movie because, you know, if he had been working with a studio or something, they would have been on his neck and yeah, yeah. he wouldn't have had the, the ample time that he felt he needed to to, to work on this. Um, they originally tried to create their own eerie music, uh, but Romero realized this wasn't really working. And so he decided to use stock music, which actually came on like records back then. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, the final film has a thousand cuts, which is far more than the wow. average high end Hollywood movie of the era. They were kind of running out of money in post. So Russ Streiner challenged Jack Naper who was the head of Pittsburgh's WRS Motion Picture Laboratories, to a chess game. Yeah. The, the the deal was that if he won, Naper would eat the lab bill, which some people said was the soundtrack, and other people said it was the like the process the last of the film. Yeah. I'm not positive, but either way, he did lose the game, and he had to, he had to pay for it. So they got a free whatever the, whatever the game was over. All right. Because uh, of Russ Steiner's, um, Steiner's uh, chess skills. Uh, and because of this, they would use sound to kind of mask imperfections and cuts. Mm-hmm. Carl Hardman, who again had worked in radio, and his crew also used sound to heighten the fear factor. And apparently he was a really good whiz with like adding sound effects. Yeah. And um, so at this point, they finally got their answer print. And they were on their way to New York to show distributors their their film and try to get you know in- interest when they turned on the radio and they heard that Martin Luther King Jr. got shot. Literally the day, that day. Mm. Um, and they had some trouble. But, but I think Romero was saying like at that point he kind of realized – this was kind of the point where he realized, okay, so maybe people, maybe this captures a different thing than what I had initially thought of. Yeah. Um, so, uh, but they had a little bit of trouble with distribution. Obviously, this movie dealt with a lot of taboos and and kind of pushed the envelope of what was shown at the time. Yeah. Uh, Columbia actually came close to a deal, but ultimately rejected the film because it was in black and white. American International Pictures mm-hmm. wanted them to soften it and change the ending, but they stuck to their guns and said, no, we're not going to do that. Uh, Romero was quoted as saying, my biggest complaint about horror and about fantasy cinema usually is that you do it to upset the ways of the world. And then traditionally, in the end, you sort of restore it all. And you say, well, why the hell did we go through all that in the first place? And so I thought, I had to leave the world a mess. Uh, it's when daylight comes and here comes the posse and here are all these rednecks. And to me, those are the real zombies, you know? We were 60s guys. We really thought that we had an honest chance at having changed the world in that time. And then you turn around and not only has it not changed for the better, but probably to some extent for the worse. Things were actually starting to get worse right then. That was sort of the beginning of the downhill. And so that's the anger that, I think, created those final scenes. If we'd enabled it in any other way, it would have been hard for us to hold our heads up. That's a cold quote right yep. there. That's a, And I think ooh. that pretty much explains everything we were explaining earlier yeah, yeah, yeah. in regards to like the, the thoughts of the time. Yeah, no, I agree. So they got a sales agent. Um, and he helped er, er, uh, the sales agent helped them get a uh, deal with Continental Releasing, which was a subdivision of Walter Reed organization, who agreed to show the film. Uh-huh. But they had to change the name because another distributor had a 
at the time this was referred to it was so during shooting it was referred to as the monster flick yeah they changed it to night of anubis because that was romero's original short story but then he realized nobody knew who anubis was it's like a god of death in egypt or something yeah in it, egyptian it, uh, folklore i've seen the first few mummy, uh, the mummy movies anubis is a big thing <laughs> um book, i think it's a book of anubis is what it is and so then they changed it to night of the flesh eaters but again this other distributor had a similar title um so they gave him a cease and desist so they had to change the name to night of the living dead um uh, so so Walter Reed organization or Continental Releasing underneath them uh, changed the name. Uh, and also they wanted more gore. And so they dug up every shot of the ghouls feasting oh, wow. they could find and uh, also cut some of that scene with the Coopers arguing in the basement, which is why there's that weird jump cut. Did you notice okay. it? Uh, when they're arguing? Yeah. Yeah. Because there's like apparently like eight more minutes of them arguing that was cut, mm. excised. Um, Good. Yeah. No, I agree. That, it already goes on like, yeah. to the point where you need Uh. The, Romero was very sad though because in this process a wide shot of the zombies outside got lost mm. and he was like instead of just moving it to another part of the movie we just lost it and he was he's always been sad about that he said it was a beautiful shot and it's it's long gone because unfortunately in the 80s uh, a flood in Pittsburgh ruined all the original elements of this oh, film um, but anyways Bill Cardile had been hyping the movie up on chiller, on his chiller theater program uh, local news reports had been you know telling taking stories about it throughout the production so the community had really been rallying around this for months and so when it first screened on October 1st 1968 at the Fulton Theater in Pittsburgh its premiere it was re- it, it really went up you know like it, it went well um, and the uh, the distributor booked the film in 14 area drive-ins which attracted crowds uh, in, in in Pittsburgh but also as it moved from city to city mm-hmm. it, it initially wasn't a big hit but it would become a big hit be- Due to this series of events that I'm going to try to lay out. Mm-hmm. So it was added. So it, for people that don't know, in the 60s, they would have these Saturday matinees that were horror films. A lot of times it was like Universal Monster movies or like 50s B monster movies. Yeah. Things like that. Um, and because the MPA wasn't yet established, it would only be established a month later after yeah. this released. <laughs> this was added to that lineup. Oh, no. And Ebert, Roger Ebert, or one of our favorite critics, went to one of these screenings. And he wrote a review on January 5th. And this is what he's quoting as saying. The kids in the audience were stunned. There was, al- <laughs> there was abs- almost complete silence. This was ghouls eating people up, and you could actually see what they were eating. This was little girls killing their mothers. This was people being set on fire. Worst of all, even the hero got killed. And, you know, for context, again, in the 60s, um, parents would just drop their kids off at the theater, and they would go to these, like, double, triple bills of these yep. monster movies. And so can you imagine, like, watching Dracula or something, and then this is... <laughs> this comes up. <laughs> um, yeah. I, what, I don't what? think you want to traumatize kids in that way. In New York, it released in December of that year, the 68, and it played at the New Amsterdam Theater on 42nd Street, which was the street with all the Grindhouse Theater, so it was treated as such. And yeah. critics in New York mostly dismissed it. But the National Associate, Association of Theater Owners gave it the award of Exploitation Picture of the Month. Hey. Um, and it became the top-grossing film in Europe in 1968. Uh, it was written about in France and kind of reappraised, and this caused a wave of it like all over the world being reappraised as an actual work of art. In fact, the Museum of Modern Art in New York ended up playing night later to standing room only crowd. Uh, it played at drive-ins and midnight houses for months and even years. It was a huge hit, dubbed, quote-unquote, the most profitable horror film ever produced outside the walls of a major studio. Wow. Uh, Kale, uh, in her review, wrote, one of the most gruesomely terrifying movies ever made, and when you leave the theater, you may wish you could forget the whole horrible experience. Uh, so but, if she didn't like it, is what you're saying? I, yeah, apparently she didn't. Um, the film's the film's grainy, uh, yeah. banal, serious, it yeah. works for it. Gives it a crude realism. Ah. I think she was kind of mixed on it. Yeah. Um, the, uh, unfortunately, though, uh, like she just, like you just quoted, 
they didn't really know how to negotiate this idea of uh, like what film stock the movie was going to be printed mm-hmm. on. And for that reason, the distributor took uh, liberties and decided to print it on really bad film stock. And so oh, no. the print she saw probably looked like shit. Probably did look like shit. Um, and they remembered like seeing it at various different places and it looks very different. Mm. Not really what the, the image that they remembered having and the image that you can kind of see on the Criterion Blu-ray and, uh, and 4K. Um, image Tim would go on to file a lawsuit against Walter Reed because they were taking forever to give them the money um, to regain rights to the picture uh, along with $1.5 million in damages. Now, this case dragged on forever. Uh, it wasn't even until 1975 that the Pennsylvania Supreme Court got around to deciding that the case should be tried there rather than New York. And by that time, the lawsuit had doubled to $3 million. Oh, but the distribution rights came back to Image 10 when Walter Reed went bankrupt in 1978. Mm-hmm. Now we get to the copyright issue. So, as I said, they changed the title from Night of the Flesh Eaters to Night of the Living Dead. And so when they had their answer print, on the title, Night of the Flesh Eaters, they had the copyright symbol in the corner right above the title, right? Mm. But when the distributor changed the name, they did not put that symbol there. And at the time, if that symbol was not there, yep. this was the copyright law, it was assumed to be in public domain. Yeah. And for that reason, they never saw any dime from the European release or, you know, as it, as it kind of blew up, it, once people realized it was in public domain, they would make pirated prints. And, and again, as it went to home media, you know, pirated VHSs, DVDs. Yeah. So it's really hard to know actually how much money this movie actually made. And it also means you can probably like take story elements as well Absolutely. from it because it's not copyrighted. Absolutely. It's, it's and they've since domain. changed that law. So any like finished work is already like copyrighted. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, but at that point, like that's it's Yeah, movies that just slip in the public domain because yeah, because of that where they didn't put the symbol uh on the opening titles or something some paperwork wasn't filed or something was wrong on the movie. It's like charade, I think, has similar thing as mm-hmm. well. Or like it's wonderful life. I think fell in the public domain just because of just it being passed around so much, and something wasn't done correctly yeah. in the release. They like just, loopholes, yeah. Yeah, like loopholes. It just like falls. It falls out of um, uh, ownership, yeah. basically. Um, but the film was added to the National Film Registry in 1999. Um, Hal Roach Studios did a colorized version in 1986 on VHS, um, and because of this kind of like copyright issue. Like, Hal Roach wasn't the only one to, to release it, but that colorized version was pretty much denounced by anybody that, like, really appreciated this film. Yeah. They tried to remake it, or they did remake it in 1990 with a lot of the same original um, people brought on as producers. Mm-hmm. And it was directed by Tom Savini. Uh, Romero actually scripted the, the script as well, based on their original screenplay. There were some changes, though. They made Barbara a more, a more capable and active her- heroine. Mm-hmm. But Savini has famously, like... Not denounced the film, but said he had a horrible time making it. This is a quote from him. That was the worst experience of my life. Everybody had a different idea or wanted a favor. I've learned that even if they're your best friends, if, if it's your vision, then you should stick with it because nobody stabs you in the back worse than your best friends. I still have nightmares that I'm on that movie set directing that movie and waiting for the sun to come up so I could just stop shooting and go home. <laughs> That's um, funny. Uh, but yeah, uh, so that was kind of an attempt by all of them to like see some money from this. Uh it's kind of been, you know, it kind of got, it kind of has mixed reviews if you look online, but yeah. uh, I I think it makes some interesting changes. It's like an interesting thing, but of course it's never going to hold a candle to the original. Mm-hmm. Um, another unsanctioned remake was made in, in uh, 3D and released in September of 2006. Uh, it was called Night of Living Dead 3D, uh, but this wasn't like the, like it was a remake, so they yeah. shot new stuff. Uh, in 1998, Russo created a revised version of the film, again, trying to, to get some money from this 
copyright debacle, and it was released on VHS and DVD by Anchor Bay. So the rule here was if they shot an additional 18 minutes of footage and added a new soundtrack, they would able to. it would be a new piece, essentially. Yeah. And so that's what he did. He added scenes, shot new scenes, one of which has Bill Hinsman. Like, it's like before the opening, and it's showing how his body got to the cemetery. Um, I watched that on YouTube and it's not good. Um, yeah, because he's thirty years old. Yeah, 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 and he looks it. Um, <laughs> and on the apparently on the commentary of this version, they were like, "Oh man, this is seamless." Like, because they shot him the same film stock yeah, and yeah. I think the same lenses. But um, he was like, "Yeah, it's just seamless like transition." And like, I, I don't know, man. Maybe, maybe in nineteen ninety eight, it looked like it on the DVD or the VHS, but not, not now, on, not on YouTube. Um, so yeah, so he did that. Uh, Romero wasn't involved because not only was he working on other projects, including his never produced film adaptation of the Resident Evil video game series. But he didn't want to touch the original film. Mm-hmm. Uh, in 2009, a colorized 3D version was made by Legend God. Films in Passmore Lab. Uh, and this is just a couple of the versions. I mean, it's been tons. And, and they, they even said, like, they thought about suing the theater showing it, but they would have had to get a lawyer in each area where the, in regards to, like, internationally, would have to get a lawyer in mm-hmm. each area. And they just didn't have the money for that. Uh, and that's why they kind of did some of these other productions uh there was a night of the living dead reanimated in 2009 which took the original soundtrack of the film and then had people create animated sequences uh from people all over over 100 artists worldwide that were involved uh and then of course there was romero's timeline of dead films i call them spiritual sequels some people call them direct sequels but mm-hmm. I, I think they're more spiritual sequels uh from 1978 to 2009 he released these five films dawn of the dead day of the dead land of the dead diary of the dead and survival of the dead there's also the Return of the Living Dead series. Now, this is interesting. I didn't know about this. John Russo wrote the novel Return of the Living Dead in mm-hmm. 1978 as a sequel to the original film. So after after Night of the Living Dead came out, he became a, he became a novelist and yeah, yeah. wrote various books uh, and also worked in uh, a little bit of movies. But he, he wrote a screenplay with Russ Streiner and um, Rudy Ritchie uh, ad- adapting this novel to a screenplay. The rights were bought by Tom Fox, who hired Dan O'Banion to direct and rewrite the script. Now, O'Banion pretty much changed everything but the title. And the film came out, which I actually like this movie, but it came out. I, it's like every time Living Dead as well. Yeah, uh, but it came out around the same time as Day of the Dead. And so Romero and his associates tried to stop them from marketing the film as a direct sequel to Night of the Living Dead. Yeah. And demanded a title change. Uh, they were, it, through, through the court system, they were forced, uh, the producers and, and production of uh, Return of the Living Dead were forced to cease their advertising campaign, but they were allowed to keep the title. Mm-hmm. Um Night of the Living Dead has also been reinterpreted in at least two stage musical incarnations. I found I wow. found three. I found three. So, in two thousand two, writer Thomas Hogland and composer Chad Kashuba presented Night of the Living Dead the musical in Detroit, and then there was another one in Aurora, Illinois, in two thousand seven. Aurora, Illinois, baby. And then there was also a stage musical in twenty nineteen called Night of the Living Dead Explanation Point, the musical Explanation Point, that ran off Broadway uh, and has since been produced nationally. Uh, the show's concept album was actually in the top fifty on the soundtrack chart. Oh apparently. hell yeah. And of course, as we discussed, this film kind of became kind of redefined what a zombie was. So this isn't obviously the first movie to show zombies as they were known before, like in regards to Haitian folklore and stuff. Yeah, uh, where they would like either inject somebody with something or, or blow something into some like a uh, a substance to allow them to basically make that person zombified and allow them to puppeteer them. And yeah, have that, them... that was I walked the zombie. Right. Yeah. And. Uh, and of course, it wasn't the first movie either to show a reanimated corpse. I mean, we talked about Frankenstein. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it was the first movie to kind of establish zombies as these flesh-eating monsters. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, it's inspired countless directors. That book that I read, like the whole first ten pages, is just quotes from directors. But I really like this was Craven quote, so I, I wrote it down. Mm-hmm. That movie, more than anything else I can think of, liberated me to make Last House on the Left because I knew that 
After that, there was a whole new kind of film blossoming in American cinema. It was something hybrid that mixed terror and laughter and social comment into one heady, totally unpredictable witch's brew of entertainment unlike anything I'd have ever experienced before. I was hooked, and it's George's fault. And it's interesting hearing Craven say that because that kind of becomes Craven's M.O., I think, a lot of the time. Um, not in every film, but I think his uh, he does make movies that have some sort of social commentary. If it's People Are on the Stairs, um, Serpent and the Rainbow, uh, I mean... Which also yeah. deals with zombies. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, but yeah, so all these different and and yeah, that's and a mix of like the 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 comedic and that is scream and and in a way, Cravens. We talked about this uh, with our horror comedy month. Is that Cravens kind of a horror comedy director? Just leans more in horror, but it's still there. There's a, there's a sly sense of humor in his movies. Is the thing. Yep. So what worked for you? Uh, what worked? Uh, I think Ramir. I think the ambition of Romero and team works in this movie. I think it really shows on, cause I, I was watching, I was like, God, like this movie could easily suck. Yeah. Like it, yeah, it, really. it could, it could yeah. legitimately suck, but I've seen examples of that where like we made it fast, we made it cheap. And there's something when you see something like this, or I think even carnival of souls as well, where like, it, it's almost, it's a miracle that it was made at the, the level it was made and it to be good is the thing. And it to be, impactful and uh and in some cases with with that living dead at least immediately become impactful and a comment on the era it's being released yeah. in so it does a great job with that i think dwayne jones is great uh in the lead role i i think again the design of all these zombies and just kind of the 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 creation of them is, is really fantastic and then yeah i think romero Again, it builds tension very well in this movie. I think it's a it's a well crafted film overall in terms of like pace and story, um, and it definitely kind of redefines this kind of horror genre in this moment. And like, uh, while it's independent, there is just something about it, it's a it's a. I won't say it's it's a it's a very professional film is is what I mean. Mm-hmm. Like, I won't say it's a it's a a slick independent film. But it, it's not as rough around the edges as it could be, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's authentic, but it's not like we're going to 2000 Maniacs, and that feels like we're really putting throwing stuff together, and and we're, you can tell that they're shooting in like rooms, and they just have like a light blasting. It's like it's not well lit all the time, but it has a a a, a time period look to it. But this is actually like the shadows are great, cinematography is great, um, the design of it all is, is really great. Uh, for you, what about you? No, I concur with everything you said. Okay. <laughs> uh, but is there anything that doesn't work for you? Um, I think some performances don't work. I think some of the performances are just weaker. Is the thing I, I do think, like, not saying she's bad, but I, I think like I agree with the if them redoing, adding more uh, uh, purpose to Barbara is the thing. Barbara with just kind yeah. Barbara just kind of disappears in this movie, and, and that was back. like a big criticism at the time. So Romero yeah. took that to heart when he remade it. Yeah, rewrote it. So I th- I think that's my only like real big issue with it is that is that it's like she's good she's good and then just kind of disappears and then kind of comes back and and almost like oh yeah she was in this she was here for the entire time so I just she needs to be more active. Yeah, yeah. 
No, my my main things is like small technical things, continuity errors. Um, yeah, the screen direction. <laughs> if you listen to the commentary, they're all on themselves about how bad they were with screen direction and not yeah. knowing about the you know one eighty degree rule, rule and whatnot. Um, but I think kind of what you're talking about with exploitation cinema and on the um the maniacs episode is uh it, it, it these kind of like little errors almost add to like the charm mm-hmm, of it you mm-hmm. know uh, I agree but anyways okay so we can get into film facts I only have a couple things here okay uh, Romero actually worked as a gopher on North by Northwest did you know that oh well, I never knew that yeah but this experience left teenage Romero less than wowed he was quoted as saying that. I didn't see him referring to Hitchcock much yeah. but I did see him some and the way he worked was just so mechanical yep. there was no vitality on that set. And then my other film fact here, a tornado... You move when the camera moves. <laughs> a tornado actually uprooted the cemetery in Evan City. Not while, not while they were shooting, oh, but God. later. And uh, and unearthed some 200 bodies that had to be reinterred. Oh, and according God. to Russo, he's not confident that they were put back in that same cemetery. In, in the right, oh. <laughs> <laughs> you move the tombstones, but you didn't move <laughs> the bodies. All right, and that takes us to awards. Well, I, have few, oh. I have a few things. Oh. I looked at some, some film facts here I saw. I was with the copyright stuff. Did you say the, the the amount of times it's been this been downloaded on internetarchive.com uh-uh. or whatever? How many? As of May 2023, where do you, where, where you it's the second most downloaded film of on, all time on internet archives, <laughs> which not. I guess like it's like public domain. Yeah, yeah. 3.4 million. Holy shit. Yeah. Um there are over you might say this over 200 distinct versions of the film that have been released on tape alone. Right. Um, and it's also yeah, I just highlighted a couple of them because the, the, yeah. the book list the ton. 200 yeah. and it's been released on VHS, Betamax, DVD, Blu-ray, Laserdisc and other and prim- now 4K Blu-ray and now 4K Blu-ray from Criterion uh, it was probably released on HD DVD maybe maybe not maybe <laughs> H- maybe HD wasn't wasn't there long enough but but they did mention that um, that oftentimes when a new medium like a new format would come out. This would be one of the well, first, first ones. Really, yeah. Cause it's obviously like, cause it's in public. We got to get content on yeah. there, baby. And I'm sure it's like part of that. The DVD thing is that it's probably in a lot of collections, like those monster film collections that you yeah. get. Like oh, with yeah, a bunch yeah, of public yeah, domain yeah, films. Yeah. I guarantee not a living dead's in a lot of those. I don't have that at all. Yeah. Uh, but now we can move on. Yeah, to yeah, yeah, Be interested straight word, actor, actress with limited scenes that kills it. Uh, just based off a line, I would say Russell, Striner, right? Because he's he's Johnny. Is he Johnny? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. I would say Russell Striner. I mean, I, I also want to throw George Cassana in the mix as Sheriff McClellan because he also has some great, great lines. That's fair. That's yeah. fair. Who do you want? Who do you want to go with there? I'm fine with either of them. Yeah. I mean, I think we could give it to Russell Striner because he didn't only act in it as well. He he yes. he was very much involved in. But also, inside. like, it's again, like, he's so synonymous with the movie for just one, really one scene. He pops again with yeah, Johnny. Yeah, <laughs> they're coming to get you, Barbara. Uh, yeah, I think th- I think just that line alone is, is is part of not just the 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 history of Night of Living Dead, but the history of horror. Yeah, for in sure. A way. So I would go with that. And I think a lot of people that haven't even seen this movie know that line. I agree. Uh, but he um, when he sticks his arm through the door and has the glove on. Like, yeah. The reason he sticks that first is because they were like, well, nobody's gonna know it's him because he don't have his glasses on anymore and he's dead. Yeah. So. If he's wearing those same gloves that he was wearing in the beginning, yeah. Um, so they had him wear the gloves in the beginning. But um, also, uh, she says Johnny. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like to only to reiterate it. But yeah, anyways, we gotta make sure you know. Yeah, because you haven't seen him since the opening. But uh, any pots X Factor award supporting actor actress that isn't the most memorable. I think this would go a few ways, but yeah, uh, I would like to nominate Carl Hartman as Harry Cooper, of course. That that was my number one pick, because uh, I, I think. 
we we kind of forget sometimes that like this is a very uh he gives a good performance and also like i think he's when it really like again brings home this idea of the race issue with him and ben is that his his action if ben's white his actions don't play the same way but i feel like if he's doing it purposely or not i think his actions of locking him out and like not wanting to listen to him and all these different things add a, a layer to the film that wouldn't be there if it was someone else. And I, and I, 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 I hope he was at least somewhat aware of what he, the decision he was making and the times you say like he, he was being more hard. Yeah. Yeah. The entire time. And um, I think, I think their dynamic and them playing off each other. I mean, it's like the crux of the movie like that. I agree that this whole middle section where they're stuck in the house wouldn't work if it wasn't. I, for that. I agree. I agree completely. All right, cool. So then the Gene Hackman MVP award, the person who carries the movie, director, actor, etc. So I had two nominations, potentially. Okay, I mean, here's the thing. It's like Dwayne Jones is amazing in this movie. Yeah, yeah. I think he's fantastic. I think I think he, he it's just a great performance. It's He has a lot of weight on his shoulders in this movie because of, because of that. He was aware of that. But Romero, mm-hmm. I think, essentially invents a genre yeah. with this movie. Uh, at least a subgenre. For a subgenre of this movie. Um, and does it incredibly well. Yeah, and I mean, yes, he was in charge of the largely the the main technical and, and story aspects of the movie. But yeah. the other nomination I had was oh. actually Image 10 as a collective. Oh, interesting. Because they all wore multiple hats on the movie. They all brought this li- movie to life. And as my DP would say back home, you can only shoot what's in front of the camera. Okay. Oh, we've never done that before. As like a, a like a group, um, I wonder if people will be upset. <laughs> I mean, we still get Romero. He did shepherd this whole project and brought it to life. But, but I, I did I, want to nominate. The, the I, think, I think it's interesting. I, I think I'm still gonna go with Romero because he did so much. But I do, I do, I do commend the 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 choice to to do that because I think uh, or this is again this is my vote. We can split it. It doesn't matter. Um, but I think. Because he became so synonymous with the genre, uh, and because it, 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 against his own wishes as well, yeah, he, like per, like if you look at that b- between night and dawn box set, he tried to get as far from 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 that <laughs> as, possible. as possible, yeah. Um, but he also like again, again, not not washing any of his clothes, like not doing <laughs> like like he had a very fi- big financial stake in this movie, at least in clothes yeah. too. Um, I, yeah, I I think. It's tough. I, I would I would side with him, but it's it's I, I like the idea of ah, screw it. Let's go with them. I like right. the, I like the idea of, of the group thing because I think with film it's sometimes you can get lost in the sauce. Oh, it's just one director. But I think like you're saying like that all these people in front of the camera, behind the camera, all had like multiple jobs. Yeah. To make and pretty this much work. every investor also played a zombie if they weren't yeah. on set every day. So yeah, so we'll we'll go with Image Ten first time. There we go. Ever. On the podcast. All right, final questions. Recasted. If it was a remade today, who would you cast, Brent? Uh, great question. Who do I want? I know who I want. Um, I don't want. Okay, I know who I want for one of the characters for for Ben. But you don't want to go there first. Yeah, I don't know if I want to go there first. Who you could you- also go by like introduction, so you could do uh. Like as the characters are introduced, so you could do well. Okay, first. here's the thing. for Johnny. I, I gotta get the age right, but like Stephen Merchant is like the oh, per- is that. the person for that <laughs> role, but he might be a little too too older. 
I can see that. Because um, Stephen Mer- just has that like, like yeah look to him. But we won't go that old. See, so so there's thing. Someone popped in my head, but they're in a movie. But well, I'll do this. But I think they're in a movie. They're in a movie with the, what the actor I have for Ben. Uh, I think Caitlin Deaver would be good for uh, Barbara. I can see that. I think Caitlin Deaver would be good for Barbara. Um, I think for, let's see, Harry Cooper. I don't know if I've cast him this, but I'll cast him this. J.K. Simmons. Oh, I like that. I like that. J.K. Simmons in, in, in this one as as Harry. Um, so we got Caitlin Deaver as, as Barbara. Harry is, is J.K. Simmons. And then I think Ben is John Boyega. I love that. And John Boyega and Caitlin Deaver were also in Detroit together, was what I was trying to avoid. But you know what? I didn't, and that's okay. But I think Boyega would be really good. Uh, I agree. In, in, in this, in and this almost role. like a natural progression of his character in Attack the Block, you know? I, I, yeah, exactly. Like a similar exactly, kind of exactly. conceit. But. A, sim- a similar type character. Yeah. But... I, I think or world that is you yeah know, I think and I think yeah and it play with the the social aspect of mm-hmm. it too this week it played even more right so and he's thing. older now so yeah all right that's why I, li- I like that I like it cool all right and in that case uh, does this film fit into any other genres I mean we mentioned a couple twenty four yeah. hour movie one location twenty four hour movies one location I would uh, let's see is there anything else I would put in there siege movie I would say siege movie yeah. It's like if they're like a solemn precinct, yeah, thirteen or like thirty days of night or, or Rio Bravo, and Rio Bravo, yeah. Um, so siege movie, one location movie, twenty four hour movie. Yeah, I would go with that because I, I, I don't know if I it's it's a I mean obviously zombie movie, but zombie movie but I, in a way it's like somewhat of a small town movie. But we don't really oh, explore that. That was going to be my pitch, actually. Is this a stuck in the small town movie? Because Ben's not from here. Oh, fascinating. It's wild. Because this, he's asking, like, Tom. It is, and- it is wild this genre has stuck around longer than I expected. <laughs> I did not expect this. We did it last week, 2000, 2000 Maniacs. Um, yeah, I, I forgot to write that down, but I, I would put that, it there. Yeah. I would put it there. That's That's wild. Okay. Oh. And I, I, yeah, and then Barbara and, and uh, Johnny aren't from here. Either. They're they just not from come here up here either. for the, they the grave. For the, for the grave. Yeah. Because uh, he's, like, he's like, yeah, like, why? why is, do we even remember his face? He's like, he's like driving at, like, I gotta waste four hours on He's like, <laughs> we gotta move the body or move it, mom. We gotta do one of the two things. That's what he said. She's like, Johnny, you know she can't handle this drive. Yeah, yeah it's, it's interesting. Yeah, I would go yeah. stuck in a small town. Cool. All right. And then, go, uh, Thomas. one last question How does this film fit with this month's genre? Well, I, as I said, I, I think ha- as having. Uh, Dwayne Jones in this role really adds, really makes the social horror movie. I think if it's not him, you don't have it as much. But I think by having him there, which we talked about kind of the entire episode, is that their statements are being made either on purpose or we're we're perceiving a statement as being made, um, specifically with the ending. And I think if Dwayne Jones was fighting for the ending, then he was trying to make a statement in the moment about race in America and about senseless killings of, of innocent black men. Um, so I think that's there in this movie. And I know Peel talked about that with get out. He was like, really, there weren't a lot of black voices in horror and Dwayne Jones and night living dead is probably one of the biggest and, and definitely the, mm-hmm. the first really the, to, to be a hero at least is a thing. So I think all that, uh, 
makes that the tensions between between uh, Harry and Ben of kind of fighting over who to believe, and there's there's always this doubt that Ben doesn't know what he's doing because he is a black man is the thing, and he ends up being the survivor of it all, and, and kind of I think again the way he pers- the way he views the world is different than everyone else. Again, it's it's, it's like. When she's like ranting, when Barbara's upset, he's like, "Just calm down." <laughs> and he kind of has like that with a lot of people. Just like, "Yeah, we gotta, we gotta survive this thing. Let's save this. Yeah, stuff, I mean, save he, this for he later." He really tries to like stop the arguments with. Yes, the, he really does. And so, but so there is this kind of like, "You can be the boss downstairs. I'm the boss up here." And I don't know. I don't know if it play. It didn't play. It plays differently if it's a white guy. Sure. Yeah. Thing. Or so, or even like this truck driver character they yeah. originally had. Like the fact that yeah. he's educated and like very active and you know thought, yes. thoughtful guy. It, it really. Uh, it was. It was. You know. Mind blowing at the time. Like yeah. it just hadn't been done. And then I think a lot of people put comparisons. Like I think it becomes the issue of like of King and the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. and all that. But then you have this idea of the Vietnam War, right? And I think some people have 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 analyzed saying that that uh um the zombies are like the silent majority type thing. Where he d- he did say that uh, I Am Legend is a novel about a revolution in his mind, and mm-hmm. he was trying to capture that. Yeah, and that's and that's and that's what it is, is that you're seeing people overtake. Mm-hmm. regular people in a way as if you look at it, a lot of them are like in like suit and tie like some of the men are the zombies not all of them but a lot of them it's like you're not seeing like low low rent zombies right. a lot of the time at least like your main mm-hmm. people I also forgot to mention earlier but uh, back to the non point uh, the uh, I didn't know this but it, at, like it was the first like super televised war yeah. so the footage that they were yeah. seeing on their TV was this black and white like Yes, grainy, like just nasty, dingy footage of people, you know, war, yeah. people dying and whatnot. And so he definitely captured that, like in in the way that he shot this. Yes, and and then all, and again, the ending is very much like that with the photos, right? Of, of the civil rights, they yeah. also got some of the famous civil rights and stuff. Yeah. yeah. So, so like you said, you know, capture the times, capture this anger of the late sixties yeah, and, and kind of. And the, even with that too, you got to think about too in terms of civil rights movement is that that was another big reason is that that was being televised, like. That was thing about Selma, uh, with like I think with Bloody Sunday is what it was, um, where like that was televised, and that's when America saw what was happening mm-hmm. uh, in in these areas is the thing, and that's in like sixty five, sixty four, I think is what it is, sixty four. Um, so yeah, it's like uh, I think it was Bloody Sunday, yeah, Bloody Sunday March, yeah, um. But yeah, it's it's like uh, so that's all very apparent, I think, in this movie. And 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 even if it, they're not if they're mean to or not, I think I think I think Romero probably had some ideas of that. If it wasn't a, a black character, but having a black character in it, I think, just amps up these social issues even more mm-hmm. than what he initially intended. But I think that's what came one of the reasons why it's had this legacy for so long. Uh, and continues to have a legacy because it's so instrumental, instrumental in the social horror aspect, just horror in general, and, and just the, film in general, and just film in general. Yeah. Yes, I agree with the kind of guerrilla filmmaking at the time mm-hmm. um, of the kind of indie movement that's cropping, that's popping up at this period. Is that you don't need a big studio, a big budget. No, you can make it, this with your friend. You it's know, like this is this is like when you're seeing at this point, like Scorsese's made. It's like I think Scorsese made. Who's that knocking at my door in like 67, I think? So you're seeing the kind of court, we talked about 2000 Maniacs, like the Corman, the Herschel Gordon Lewis's, all these different people who are making movies at this time, and Romero slides in there coming out of, mm-hmm. coming out of uh, uh, 
not the Corman School, but the Fred Rogers School of uh, <laughs> uh, filmmaking. Of, of filmmaking. <laughs> um, but yeah, but no, yeah, I think, I, I think, I think that's that's how it becomes social horror in a I, way. I agree, and it's up there. I think it's up there as one of the best. Because For sure. Of that. We we would have been remiss if we didn't mention that this month, you know, mention this movie this month. Yeah, I I agree. So, how do you feel about Night of the Living Dead? Now we've done it. It's a masterpiece, man. All right. Um, uh, I hope we do Dawn of the Dead at some point as well, because <laughs> that was on my short list. Well. Oh, really, yeah. Hopefully we do. Hopefully we do. But uh, oh yeah, Patreon. So Thomas and I, I think it's coming out within the next week. Thomas and I are talking about Tales from the Hood and Bones, kind of a double feature of social horror movies. Bones I had not seen. Thomas had not seen Tales from the Hood. So it was interesting. Oh, interesting. I picked one. He picked the other. Uh, so that's coming out in the next week or so, um, if not out already. And then you and I will be talking about the original Invasion of the Body Snatchers, I believe is what it is from the 1950s, uh, from 1955, I believe. Uh, and that will lead us to Thomas and I talking about Invasion of the Body Snatchers um, on the main episode the, in the, the 70s one. Yeah. 70s one. I think 78 is what it I, is. I think so. Yeah. Um, with Donald Sutherland. Um, but that is that is streaming, I believe, on Max. And I believe on 56 of the original one. Uh, Prime and Max. Coming to me on Prime and Max. So check that out if you can. Directed by Philip Kaufman from 78. Donald Sutherland and Leonard Nimoy and Brooke Adams. So that's next That's next week. And uh, again, check the Patreon out. Subscribe to it if you can. The, we'll try to give exclusive, exclusive content for the uh uh, for everyone who's joins, also I forget I didn't I didn't mention this at the beginning of the show. I gotta mention it here. Uh, I, I forgot about this. I might add it in later. But uh, November tenth, we're doing a screening of Children of Men at the New Art Theater in Los Angeles. So it's our second Cination Co presents after our Fan of the Paradise success a few weeks or a few months ago now. And we're doing Children of Men from Afonso Quran. Uh, November tenth, ten thirty p.m. on Friday. Five dollar tickets. So get them now. There's limited time or limited time. Our new art's doing kind of a for retro movies, a little bit cheaper tickets. So do that if you can. Um, we want to have a good turnout for that. Children of Men on the big screen, a masterpiece in the big screen. I've never seen on the big screen. I haven't either. Yeah, yeah. And and I'm I, excited. I know we talked about it uh, on the episode. Is that it didn't really get a great release in America. It wasn't really a box office success in America. So now a lot of people saw it. I think on the big screen. So come out if you can. L.A. New Art Theater, 10.30 p.m., November 10th, $5. Hope to see you guys there. Um, but that's what we have in this episode. If you have any questions for us, feel free to contact us at podcast at gmail.com. Send us your questions, comments. And if you're a new listener to the show or a fan of the show and for some reason you haven't subscribed to us yet, be sure to do so so you can stay updated on all of our new episodes. You can subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or your podcast. If you haven't already, be sure to write us review your preferred podcast platform. These reviews help us gain exposure, help people find us more, help us kind of get in the algorithm more. But also, we like hearing what you have to say. So tell us if you like us. Tell us if you can improve on something. We'll try to listen. But most importantly, five stars would be great. Five stars helps us out. Just keep helping us out if you can. And don't forget to like and follow us on Facebook. Instagram, Twitter X, uh, Twitter X, that's what it's been called, uh, Letterboxd and TikTok. But yeah, David, thank you always for joining me. Thanks for having me, man. And thank you all for listening. We hope to listen to more episodes soon. Bye.